It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today's episode feels really special to me. I met the two guests that we have with us today through a group that I go to with Pat Flynn, who has inspired my podcasting journey and a lot of my work online over many years. And I met these two lovely human beings in a group that is done for Southern California residents. And I just really thought they had an amazing story and input to share that we haven't really touched upon today. But before we get into that, I want to know more about who they are as human beings on a more personal level. And on their website, which is Bitsy Bitesy, is that right? I haven't said it out loud. Am I saying the name of your, your company right? Yes, yes. Bitsy Bitesy. I love that. It's so interesting because sometimes you see words and in my head, I thought it was like, bit by something, but Bitsy Bitesy is so cute and catchy, which it'll we'll talk more about exactly what that means. But on your about page, you shared some really nice details about yourselves, which I really like when people include in their about sections and bios when it's like a little bit more insight into who somebody is and why they do what they do, which I also really liked. You have a great about page, which we're going to link to for the listener on our website, wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. There's a podcast section and notes. We have a transcript. We have the video if you're not already watching it and links to everything about our guests. And on this about page, there is a few things you share that I would like to know more about. One is that you said you're foodies by obsession. So I'm curious, <laughs> what is your favorite food? And when you call yourselves a foodie, how do you define what it means to be a foodie? Because Jason and I are foodies as well. Oh, my wife likes anything spicy. And how spicy? Because Jason likes spice too. Yeah. But it's all relative, right? Because there's like American spicy, but different levels. Yeah, the Indian spice is a little bit different, right? Usha can uh, add more to it. I feel that the there is this Mexican spice, which they use different kinds of peppers versus Indian spice. We use dry chili a lot instead of the green. I mean, we do use the green ones as well, but there's more of the red pepper as well. So maybe a good measure is when you go to a restaurant and they ask you how spicy you want the food to be, what do you say? I would personally get nine or ten. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Nine <laughs> or 10. Okay. So I have done this over the years because I, although I'm not doing it currently in this moment, I suppose m most of my work is associated with food and being a chef, uh, being a professional chef for 15 years of my career. Oh, wow. And one of the biggest challenges, right, I believe is when we are preparing food is we have our own palates and we have our preferences. We have the flavors and the textures and the things that we enjoy. But I have been accused my entire career of making things too spicy for people. 
because it's difficult for me because much like you, Usha, you know, my palate wants complex flavors. My palate wants a high level of spice, but I've had people tell me, you can't make it this spicy. You're going to hurt us. <laughs> so I find it funny too, because I will go and order very spicy food and inevitably have people complain about it because then it's inedible to them. Do you both run into that? And I'm curious, I know you, you have two children. Do they share your same love for that level of heat and spice or not? The older one does. <laughs> Unfortunately, the younger one's quite opposite. <laughs> yeah, it was so far, right? I guess that could change. I don't see it changing because even the older one, even from when he was one year old, he was he would always, we would never order anything special for him. Like when we go to the restaurant, he would always eat out of our plates, right from when he was one year old. The younger one, yeah, it's totally a different story. He, wow, uh, yeah, he craves for anything sweet and then he just walked in <laughs> asking if he could eat ice cream <laughs> right now <laughs> that's so interesting because so much of your work it seems to me about understanding what works for somebody right because getting into teaching styles for example which we're going to talk about today and i think this ties into what you're saying because not every child even from the same family is going to think the same, want the same things. And part of what makes your work very interesting is how a lot of school systems or teaching styles in general seem to be like a one-size-fits-all approach. But it's just like food in the sense that some people don't like spicy things. And so you need to adjust versus trying to force somebody to eat the same way as somebody else does. So I love that. And I know your children are also part of your story. And on the about page, I saw that they've been involved with your company and the design of your website, which I think is really neat that you're involving them in this process. But before we get there, I'm also curious, you said that you love music. So what type of music do you listen to is my next question. Uh, we listen to a lot of Bollywood music. A lot of Western as well, mostly pop stuff. What else do we like? We also like the Indian classical music as well, which is quite different from Western classical. And both my sons, they go to Indian classical music classes. They just started, actually. So we have interest in that as well. Does that mean that they're playing instruments or singing? Like, what do those classes involve? Singing, for sure. My elder son goes for a violin class as well. This is Western violin, though. The violin is used in Indian classical music as well, but it is tuned differently. And I don't know much about the, you know, the technicalities of it. I don't play any instrument, but there is quite a bit of difference, though. Even though it's the same instrument, it is played very differently. Yeah, this is fascinating to me because music is also one of my greatest passions in life. And I grew up in the city of Detroit. And in Detroit, we had so many, and to this day, there are a lot of world musicians who live in that city. People who are playing Middle Eastern music, Iraqi music, Indian music. It really is a, a wonderful experience to grow up in a musical city like that. And through me playing in bands, I, I'm a guitar player and a singer, I was exposed to so many other styles of music, much like food, just exposing myself, my mind, my palate, my ears to many different things. My mentor, Michael, who we've mentioned on the show many, many times, he, he's a, a life mentor to me. 
very much like a father. He has played the sitar for many, many years. He actually, every time I go to his house, he has this gorgeous, gorgeous sitar. And you know, interestingly, years ago, I thought for me, being a guitar player and understanding chord progressions and melody and, and specific Western tunings with the guitar, you know, I thought I could pick up the sitar and just kind of do the same things. And I learned very quickly that it does not translate the way that I thought, that the scales and the chord progressions and the tunings on a sitar are very, very different than traditional guitar playing. So it's something that at someday, I think, along with the oud, the oud is a, a Middle Eastern guitar stringed instrument. I have a desire to learn these things. It's just finding the time to do it. So much like you putting your son in music classes now, I wish I would have done this in my younger years, <laughs> but it's okay. You know, if you're passionate about something, you, you find the time to do it. But someday I hope to learn and become more proficient at the sitar. Hmm. Sounds good. Yeah. There is, uh, you know, people I've heard uh, who know the Western classical, when they look at the Indian classical music, they're kind of blown away with the complexity it offers. Again, we are not musicians. We only listen. We are connoisseurs of music, not, uh, you know, uh, producers of it. But yeah, we really enjoy listening to it, though. That's really neat. And to get your children involved with that, too, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that when children study music, it's really helpful for their cognitive development. Is is that a reason that you have brought them to music classes or is it just because of a passion? Was there did they ask you to take those classes? How did you make that decision? I think part I mean, originally we would have appreciated if we had learned music when we were little that's probably the starting point of it other than just enjoying it we could go back and learn music i mean we could still do but it's just way way more harder than what it is for the kids yeah it's almost like learning a language right like as children you pick it up so much faster mhm and then we expose them to so different singing and different instruments we we were trying out piano and then violin, and they just happen to like one over the other. Wow, that's so cool. I want to go look up that instrument because I don't know much about it off the top of my head. So I think this is so important to also understand the cultural differences, which is, you know, realizing when you don't know enough about something and expanding just again, like like you expand your palate to different foods. I think it's so important to look at all the different cultural traditions or, or things that people do differently. And just you've inspired me too to go listen to some classical Indian music because I'm not quite sure if I, I have an idea of Bollywood music, but not very much either. But I don't know if I've ever really listened to classical Indian music. So thank you for bringing that up because do you have a favorite, by the way? Like where would I start if I wanted to go on Spotify? Is it available on there? Is that where you would listen? Or where do you find this music to listen to? Generally on YouTube. I will send you some links uh, that could be a good starters. Um, great. We'll put that in our so, show yeah, notes right. so yeah. everyone can check it out. Yes. Yeah. YouTube is such a great source yes. of music too. It's like you can find anything <laughs> on there and maybe they have some videos of people playing it, which would be nice. Yeah. 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 
lastly, I saw in your about bio that you love succulent plants. So I'm curious about this and what is your, where did that passion come from? Do you both have a passion for it? Is it something that you spend time as a hobby or do you just have a few of them and enjoy looking at them? We recently remodeled our backyard like three, four years ago. And as part of the remodel, we put in a big box, five foot by five foot box with all kinds of succulents in it. I don't know the names of them. I I, I may know some of them, but I love that, you know, they are easy to care for. Also, the way they, you know, it's quite different from other plants, right? They, you know, all you need is a leaf from the succulent to grow the new plant, which was pretty interesting. And I like the patterns, actually, that a lot of those have very, very interesting patterns and colors. That's what attracts me to it. And my wife likes it because it's easy maintenance. (laughs) I'm glad that you brought that up because my mother taught me this about how you can take just this tiny part of the plant and, and grow a whole new one. And I, I have two succulents at home that my mother picked when she visited. I don't remember how many years that was, but you're right. She took this tiny little piece and put it in a pot. And now it grew to this big piece, a big plant. And I just water it once a week. And it's perfectly happy outside in Southern California. And there's something so nice about that whole experience because someone like me who doesn't really have a green thumb, (laughs) I don't feel bad. I'm not going to harm the plant very easily. But I think that process of watching something evolve from this tiny little piece and grow and kind of surprise you, it's kind of like a good metaphor for life or something. And it can be very meditative to look at. I've done the same thing here in my garden in Los Angeles, where I suppose I have a reputation for not taking the best care of plants, much like Whitney. I I think I have, you know, a great mint plant that is doing well. But much like we're talking about, I've actually taken fragments and leaves of the many succulents. And what started off as one, I now have 10 in my garden. And they're just so hardy and they're so able to withstand so many conditions here. So the extreme heat we get here, of course, in Los Angeles, they can withstand that. Whenever we get floods, they withstand that. So I am also a believer in the power of succulents because it's the only plant that has survived in my garden thus far. That and mint, that's all I have. That's all I've got. That's awesome. (laughs) Well, I think this can be a good transition into talking about well-being, which I know is something that you're interested in, in terms of a childhood development and support and empowering children. So I would love to know more about what inspired you to start the work that you're doing, but perhaps you can start off by sharing a little bit more about the work that you do and then tell us how that came to be and, and how did you start this whole journey for you know, your whole website and all everything that you offer on it. Yeah, sure. So basically, if you look at, uh, you know, somebody who who's born 30, 40 years ago versus somebody who's born maybe, you know, 10 years or even earlier than that, they are growing up in a very, very different world, right, compared to the ones who are born 30, 40 years ago. And they are basically growing up in a society which is purely built 
mostly built by code, built by computers and by coders. You know, the coding and the computers have really transformed how we live, how we communicate, how we get entertained, how we shop, and how we even order food, and even how we get educated, right? Most of the classes have moved to Zoom, you know, this year, especially with the pandemic. So code has really transformed, you know, the way we live. And it's unfortunate that kids think that this is all magic. They don't really understand how this works, how the you know things work behind the scenes. And that's where we come in. Basically, we want to show them how things are made using code, whether it's a website, whether it's an application, whether it's a game or any real world application like Netflix or you know Zoom application, all of these, right? They're all built by code. Even the, the podcast we are on, the recording is possible, made possible by a piece of code written by somebody somewhere. So that's where we kind of come in. We want to show them behind the scenes, teach them the foundational elements of how to code things and how to put together things. It's an interesting, it was an interesting start, actually. You know, a few years ago, one of my friends, uh, they have two middle schoolers and uh, it was summer. And they said, hey, you two, you guys are coders. Why don't you guys, you know, teach our kids how to code? You know, we have been in the industry working as professional programmers and coders for more than two decades, working for big companies. And we have mentored several people, several engineers on the job. But teaching 12-year-old, 11-year-old is a very different task, especially when it comes to coding, where there there are a lot of abstract concepts in it, right? It's They don't feel concrete when you're you know, beginning to learn them. So... It was really a big challenge for us to actually make them understand these abstract concepts because, you know, doing this for so long, you take things for granted, you know, and I remember the quote from Richard Feynman. He said, you know, you don't really understand something or anything unless you can explain it to a five-year-old or maybe a 12-year-old, right? So we kind of took it up on us, uh, ourselves, that, you know, maybe we, do we really know these concepts if we cannot, you know, if we cannot teach them, right? So we had to go back to the basics and find ways to teach them these concepts, right? By making them more relatable, meeting them where they are instead of, you know, you know coming in as a, oh, I have 20 years of experience, I can teach you this, right? That does not work. We have to meet them where they are and go from there. So it has been a very interesting and challenging experience. We like the challenge part of it. And also the Coding, uh, you know, especially is a very, very powerful tool, right? And we can we can talk more about this. You know, I can give you several examples of young minds who are making huge difference with code, you know, by creating these applications and solving problems for not only themselves, for people around them and for the communities at large. So this is a really, really powerful tool that they can use to stand out make a difference for themselves and others as well. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, it feels very empowering, which is which is a word I keep coming back to when I hear about the work that you do because it's such a gift to give the youth this knowledge and this skill set. 
because especially right now, there's a lot of concern over the economy and people losing their jobs or not having the right skill set. And something like coding feels like it's an incredible knowledge to have because technology keeps growing so much. And it seems like it's going to be some a job that somebody can have for many, many years. And you can't say that about everything these days because of how much the job market changes. And I feel like it seems like the youth, if they can get interested in this and be met where they're at, as you're saying, that they could develop so much passion and also have that job security, which I think is one of the greatest gifts. And I imagine for you being parents that you would want to see your children feel financially secure and also have jobs that they enjoy doing. So I'm just grateful that you're doing this work and it's really exciting. And I also think as an adult, I'm interested in it because I don't know very much about coding. I know HTML a little bit. I taught myself like that. I've been learning about cryptocurrency, but I'm I'm very confused about some of these things. And I think it's easy to your point, like cryptocurrency feels like a different language. And I've it's been a good lesson for me lately because I have to like retrain my brain about how I think about things. And that reminds me of of like when I was learning HTML. It was like literally a whole new language, but it was very empowering when I realized that I could build a website when I was in my 20s or a teens maybe is when I learned it. And at that time, not a lot of people were doing it. And still to this day, it never, I think so many websites become very drag and drop now. And I'm curious with your feelings around that, how I'm sure as developers, it must be interesting seeing how there's a lot of shortcuts being taken. And I wonder, are are there shortcuts available for people because it's so hard to understand something like coding? But I know from doing websites for maybe 15 years and not really understanding it, a drag and drop website is is a great shortcut for me because I don't want to spend all this time doing the HTML However, there's only so many shortcuts you can take. Do you feel that way with the way technology is at right now? How do you feel about those type of tools that feel like a shortcut? Yeah, you touched on a very, very interesting and important thing, actually, uh, Whitney. If you look at the programming, right, when it all started, programming looked way, way different in the 1940s. Programming was actually turning knobs, flipping switches, connecting cables, moving boxes. That was programming, right? And then we, from there, we moved to punched cards where you have to actually punch real holes on a piece of paper to program things. And from there, we moved on to writing in you know, low-level programming languages called assembly languages where it was pretty hard, actually. You have to write these various mnemonics to do a simple task, right? And it you have to have a computer science degree to do it. Uh, you know, you cannot go jump in and write a piece of code. From there, we move to text-based programming languages, which are like, you know, you may have heard about Python, JavaScript, Java, all of those 
text-based languages. They are still around. And the recent uh, addition to that is the blog-based programming languages. And the the blog-based HTML that you're referring to kind of fits into that, uh, you know, into that box. And for kids, especially, Scratch is a a visual blog-based program that is quite easy to get. You You can get started quite easily with that. So people who have, again, there's a lot of phobia, you know, in kids, even in adults, right, where they think that coding is hard. Coding is for somebody who is geeky, somebody who has, you know, really good with math, you know, all kinds of stereotypical, you know, what you say, people have myths about it, right? But that is not true. And anybody can learn to code. We strongly believe that. And especially, you know, if kids can learn to code, we can too, right? Whitney, you can as well. You can actually start looking into a text-based programming as well if you if, if you want a challenge. And um, the Blog-based definitely takes lowers the bar for entry, but they have their own limitations. And what we specially teach are the text-based programming languages, which is where you go a little deeper into how to communicate with the computer. Right? The blog-based kind of abstract a lot of things for you, makes it too easy sometimes. And in that process, what I feel is that you don't really get to see the the lower level or the behind the scenes stuff. And I don't know if, if I'm answering your question or going in a tangent. So uh, let me know, Whitney, uh, if, if that was helpful. It's very helpful. And I'm, I'm just fascinated by your insight into this. And tangents are always welcome on our show. We do them all the time. So feel free. <laughs> but, but I, <laughs> you know, I felt very fortunate. And, and this kind of comes back to my observation f- of you is my both my grandfathers were engineers and my dad was very interested in computers and when i was growing up in the 1980s you know we were seeing the development of the internet and at that time not everybody had a computer you know there was usually one computer per household and it was my dad's work so i didn't as a kid like it felt so special to get to use the computer And nowadays, not only will there be multiple computers in households typically, but other devices. So children maybe take advantage of it, but there's still that magic that you're talking about. I think it's just evolved. And I was so fortunate to have a father who was not only interested in that technology himself, but he wanted me to be part of it. So he took me to computer museums when I was little. And so I got to learn a little bit about the behind the scenes And that took me down my journey to doing some things like HTML because I had the confidence and the interest. And it's also something that I've found, and Usha, I'm curious if you feel this way, but as a woman, it's still on the rare side. I don't know statistically, but, you know, there's the movement of women in, is it STEM or STEAM? the S-T-E-M or is there an A in there? I guess it depends. There's some different variations, but but there's the growing movement of women getting more involved with technology. And I'm curious, Usha, you do have two sons, but aside from being a parent, what your experience has been like in a woman working in this field and what led you to, to pursue that? Growing up, I think my dad was an engineer and 
the scenario in back in india is different either you be become an engineer or a doctor <laughs> and i'm scared of becoming a doctor <laughs> so yeah that that kind of led me to pick engineering but i think the fascination for computers and in general technology led me to take get a degree in computer science and i agree when i was working back then and I, i'm sure it's still now there's so many few women in the stem related jobs it's shocking but one of the things i think we are proud of is we have a lot of girl students who are interested in coding so that's a very good sign that we see with our current students and i think apart from just being the i think a good student i think having more girls in stem related careers helps i think make a change i think women can see better the problems around that with which they can actually solve the re- real problems around them yeah they bring in a different kind of perspective right to the table and especially if you look at the charts numbers for women in computer science up until 1970s or 80s actually there were more women in computer science than men it is shocking and hard to believe it but it is true even the word computer itself means a human actually make, doing calculations right the the alternate meaning for the computer is a person who does calculations or computations something happened after 1980s where the there was it's been a significant drop of women in computer science npr has done a show on this they think that the advertising at that time especially from apple and other companies kind of influenced this you know the, the, most of the advertisements they showed the computer as a boy toy and it was most gifted christmas gift for boys and that kind of i think changed the perspective of the society that this is kind of a boy thing not a girl thing there may be some truth to it i remember hearing about this episode long time ago on npr that you know the women in tech actually was different up until 1980s and then the graph changed ever since i think it's starting to trickle up back you know with all the steam and the stem programs in the schools both in high school middle school and even even elementary you know some schools call it steam they add the arts in there i think and some some call it stem so it's kind of the same thing yeah i definitely agree with whitney where you know the having women uh, not just the women right uh, you know having different ethnicities actually at the table bring in different perspectives of looking at a problem and taking different solutions actually and bringing different solutions to the table definitely helps i'm curious how both of you having many decades in this industry as coders and going through that process of simplifying things so that you could teach this to children we're at a really interesting point i think in human history where we are seeing in certain applications computing power exceed the intelligence and the predictability models of the human brain of course years ago we had deep blue and the chess matches you know once computers started to defeat chess grand champions in their sport i recall that years ago thinking oh this is a fascinating moment as we continue to see the rise and the 
you know, more mainstream adoption of algorithmic technology, artificial intelligence. Do you see a point in our lifetimes or perhaps beyond our, our collective lifetimes where coders will not have as much stake in this because the computers will be writing their own code for themselves. And as we look decades into the future, how do you see the relationship of coders and algorithms and artificial technology growing together? Or will eventually the coders fall away and AI will just take off on its own? How do you feel about that? Uh, That's an interesting question. (laughs) Definitely, yes. There is a lot of talk about the AI taking over humanity, right? The you know the algorithms taking over. We are not experts on the uh, artificial intelligence, but from what I hear, from what I read, we are very, very far away from general intelligence. They call it. I think a lot of uh, artificial intelligence that we see is specialized, right? You know, a computer can recognize pictures. A computer can probably recognize voice. These are specialized programs that are fine-tuned to do one specific thing. But when it comes to general AI, I think it's very far far away into the future. And uh, if that happens, who knows? Yeah, we may have to find another job. (laughs) I don't know. I have something to add. So 20 years, 30 years back down, we would be washing dishes with hand. And then now we have dishwashers. Doesn't mean the machines have taken over our life, right? I think they have helped us make better use of the human time. Otherwise, we would still be not, maybe we wouldn't be doing all this coding and computer stuff. And we would still be doing dishes and hand washing the clothes and chores around the house. <laughs> I think that code I think that if artificial intelligence, the computers, the code is I see it as a as though it's going to improve the life, improve the I think they're going to supplement, I think, not may not replace completely. You know, they will help us find time to invest in higher order things, I guess. Yeah, that's I think probably where we will end up. It seems the, that there's a growing trend right now with AI, Jason. I've noticed in the social media and marketing world, there's a lot of artificial intelligent tools being developed right now. And it seems, to your point, that it's just designed to save us time, but they're not quite there yet. I actually don't really enjoy a lot of those tools that they s- sometimes feel like a waste of time because they're not the way that a human would do something. And in a way, that's kind of a relief. And the same thing could be said of a dishwasher. You know, (laughs) like sometimes I use the dishwasher and there's still stuff stuck on the food and I have to manually wash it off, you know, and it might waste water and electricity, whereas doing it by hand might be better. And so I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that goes back to something I was saying earlier about how children are growing up in this different time with technology. And I would love to hear more of your thoughts on that, especially as parents and people that have been working in programming for so long. You've seen so many shifts happening. And I'm curious, what is it like right now with having young children and also having children as students, what you're seeing in terms of how they're using technology and how that's helping them in their lives, but perhaps even 
is it getting in the way of their lives? I'm curious, because that's kind of a concern is, is it seems there's a lot of discussion around like our children spending too much time in front of screens. So how do you feel about that as parents? And how do you feel about that as teachers? Yeah, this is, again, you know, one of the things, most of our classes are online. And one of the objections we keep hearing is that, oh, I don't want another online class, right? But with coding, though, it is kind of a necessary evil, I would say. Not everything that, you know, you spend time on screen is screen time, right? When, especially when you're learning to code, it is actually brain time. That's when you are actually using your creativity, using your you know, thinking skills. You are building your persistence because you know, computers are precise machines. And unless your code is precise, they, the program will not work, right? So they help build you this patience, persistence, logical thinking, and all of these. So if done, if there is a balance, you know, both kids and parents, especially if they can make sure that kids are getting enough sun time as well as the screen time, then I think it's a win-win for everyone, right? You know, most of the things that you know kids are learning are online these days, and you cannot really avoid it. So if you can find a balance, and that's what we try to do at home. And Usha is actually much better than me in <laughs> doing these, uh, you know, with kids. Kids where you know she has uh, screen times on on it, on the iPads and the, and the phones they use. So. And even kids themselves, they know that, okay, I have 30 minutes. What should I do with these 30 minutes, right? They're kind of trained now. So they do 15 minutes of maybe chess game, 15 minutes of probably, you know, some other game. And they know how to manage the time. They're kind of empowered to use that 30 minutes or 45 minutes as they choose to. So I think we kind of try to always find the right balance where they get to enjoy things and also at the same time, spending time away from screen as well. I'm curious in terms of the conversation around ethics and technology, and if that's something that Srini and Usha, you you think about on a personal level, and if that ever comes up either in the you know decades of your career in the work that you've done as coders and programmers, and also with your students. And when I talk about ethics and technology, we see a lot of information coming out around social media specifically and social media apps and that these programs and their algorithms are designed to capture human attention and especially young people's attention for as long as possible. They design the aspects of the applications to hone in on specific areas of our brain chemistry, like our dopamine and our reward systems. And I'm curious if ethics and technology is something that you have conversations about and how you feel about being programmers and coders having a sense of ethical responsibility in what you design in the world. Yes, this is definitely a concern, right? I think recently there was a documentary on um, a social impact of social media, especially on kids, right? Probably last year, I forgot the name of the documentary. Uh, somebody from Facebook actually, you know, uh, came out and spoke about what the kinds of things they do to actually pull you into their system, keep you in their system for the longest time. Definitely, it is a concern when the companies are purely 
you know catering to these shareholders not to the you know the users of their technology and this is where i think again going back to witness point right having these diverse voices you know when you are coding when you actually include these diverse voices and groups of people in whatever you design maybe children should be involved as well actually and not just adults right so they should maybe have a voice in in designing these applications that we that are catering to uh, kids especially definitely yeah, i think about it a lot i think you know we talk about it a lot that you know some of the biases that are already plugged into these algorithms may hurt us more than they help us and it is a concern though and given that we have a capitalistic economy it is hard to fight fight that though do you personally with your kids as part of this do you have conversations around how social media well i guess first of all do they have social media accounts do they have social media profiles and if so they do not really <laughs> well how old are your children <laughs> they're only 5 and 10 so uh. they yeah. I mean I've five. I've met some parents though that have young children that already have Instagram profiles. So I didn't want to assume that's why I asked. So that's really interesting. Do do you anticipate that at some point they will come to you and ask permission to have profiles? We would not want to think about it, but I'm sure that day is approaching soon. <laughs> if we could, we would probably push it away. And I think that that's another reason why you know as much as possible the children need to know that there is something going on like like my 5 year old is amazed is like he we are amazed by his uh, technology usage skills he goes and searches for legos and then tells us the price and then he's ready <laughs> yeah. so and then when he's watching youtube he knows that there is an ad coming up so you know the kids actually so knowing how these algorithms work and you know how they are all interrelated instead of just thinking it like how Shini said, it's all magic that they know that somebody is tracking you. I think knowing the in the working, the inner details also helps them make the right decisions. Yes, I love that. That's such a great point. And it goes back to the power of their input on your work because I think one issue that I've noticed a lot is, and it comes back to your point about meeting people where they're at. Because I've been working in marketing for a while, I, I study all the different ways that people communicate what they do. And a lot of people struggle with clarity. And a lot of people struggle with helping other people utilize what they're offering. And I'm, I'm sure you do too, because you have, you have online services. So this must be a consideration for you too. And I think part of what happens is if we remain too much with our blinders on or in a bubble, we forget that people don't think the same way that we do and that they don't live the same way. And with children, you're pointing out how they can be very intelligent and sometimes understand things that we don't realize they understand at young ages. So parenting seems to be evolving to treat children with more like respect of their intelligence, which I think is wonderful. It seems like older parenting styles were very much about 
creating boundaries between the adults and the children as if they were completely different, but forgetting that children can understand complex things, but also utilizing that knowledge and awareness as you did. You talked about this on your about page, how your younger son clicked around on your website which could help with your website design. And you could watch how his brain was processing information, which I think is enlightening for any age because sometimes children don't have the filters that adults do. And they'll just be very honest about whether they like something or not and how easy. And to your point as well from earlier, if a five-year-old can understand something, now you're actually able to reach more people versus making something so advanced And I know, thinking back about my childhood, I I was never diagnosed with a learning disability, but I struggled a lot, and I still do as an adult. I struggle with certain types of information, and when I was in school, it was very frustrating to me when I didn't understand something. It was frustrating to me when I would get a bad grade because I couldn't learn it or memorize it or understand it quickly enough, and looking back, I wish that there had been more support for me as a child, because that can really get in the way of your confidence. So I think it's amazing that you're witnessing this with your own children, their intelligence, and you're meeting them where they're at. So that actually can lead to them feeling more confident, feeling less shame, feeling more empowered. And then you're also incorporating that into your teaching style. And I think that's incredible giving people that power and also removing the barriers to allow for more diversity in culture and gender and ethnicity and race and all of these other things that are so important. But we still have a long way to go in terms of making that type of progress. Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, You know, especially coding, right? I can give you an example of a teen, Emma Yang, who lives in New, uh, you know, in the um, East Coast. Her grandma actually has uh, Alzheimer's, which is a brain disorder, right? Uh, Where, you know, they lose the mental faculties gradually. They fail to recognize friends and families. They, you know, they forget the names of the people, the family members, and Sometimes they don't know where they are even. So what she did is she created an app for her grandma where when she calls home, right? I think she lives overseas. And when her grandma does a FaceTime or in a video call with the family, the application actually recognizes the names of the family members and shows their name below the person's head, right? So that the grandma knows kind of brings her into the context, right? And also, uh, a lot of people with Alzheimer's, they tend to forget you know, what they've done five minutes ago or 10 minutes ago, right? They, probably a symptom of that is they try to call people over and over again, forgetting the fact that they already called them, right? So the app actually kind of reminds the grandmother, yeah, you've called this person five minutes ago. Do you want to call her again or he or she again, right? So using code, she was able to express a solution for her problem, right? And could help her grandma and their family as well. And she took that app to a wider audience. And now she is the founder and CEO of a company, right? So this is the power of coding where you can start with an idea that maybe you know helpful to you but you can take it up 
to the wider audience and make it uh, build a company around it right so there are so many young entrepreneurs problem solvers out there that are using code to create solutions to everyday problems there is a kid in india who you know he saw potholes on the road and he created an app which detects the potholes on the road like if you take a picture of the road it detects the potholes uh, labels them and sends a picture to the municipal corporation right which is great it's kind of he's empowered to inform the city that there is a road that needs repair so kids all around the world right they are using this wonderful tool to really not just see the problems but see the solutions and build the solutions for these problems that they are seeing on a day to day basis so definitely you know anybody who is hesitant to learn to code we think that is a, it is a foundational skill that we should all have and if anybody has time they definitely you know should look into learning to code and how am- amazing because it's a gift to the world it's a gift to the individual and to their family and it's incredible that you're offering these trainings because i imagine going back to this conversation around how tough it is to be a parent right now with technology changing and a lot of parents are concerned about its impact on children but to your point if the children enjoy being on devices why not give them the opportunity to learn and then do something that's helping the whole world through their problem solving skills and through maybe their natural inclination to use technology. And I would think as a parent, it would be such a source of pride. You know, I mean, I can tell you for sure that my dad, he was always very proud of of my work with technology. And that was something my, my grandfathers were also very passionate about. So it kind of got passed down. And if I had children, I feel like that'd be just so exciting to see them develop things like this that make a big difference. And maybe children would have a completely different relationship with technology when they not only understand what's going on and how it's impacting them on a personal level but they can feel like they're using it as a force for good yeah that's a great phrase i would say yeah uh, force for good that's awesome one of the uh, barriers that i remember as a child to learning to code is i had a lot of assumptions when i was a child about it and i think the primary assumption that i had about learning code because i i remember very specifically having to learn different commands not necessarily code but i remember the, the some of the first experiences i had with a computer in in our household was having a commodore 64 and then we had an apple 2 and then an apple 2e And I remember using as a child these floppy disks and having to use certain commands. I remember the first PC we had, the very early versions of MS-DOS. And But in school, when I had the opportunity to learn coding, I automatically had a, perhaps a misguided assumption that I had to be good at math. And I was not necessarily good at math. I didn't do well in math. I, in school, excelled more in writing. English, art, music, things like that. So I'm wondering, Srini and Usha, is that 
a barrier that you hear or a misconception that you have heard over the years is people assuming they have to be good at math or other studies to be able to handle coding. What kind of misconceptions have you heard and which ones might be true and which ones are not true? Yeah, this is a popular one, the math one. You know, unless you are going into coding, which deals with lots of computations, scientific computations, you don't really need math more than uh, middle school math. You know, I've been coding for more than 20 years and Usha, she's been coding for more than 15 years and we barely go beyond middle school math. So if you can do basic arithmetic, basic algebra, that that is more than enough to actually learn to code. So it should not be a barrier at all. And, you know, recently we had a student who actually doesn't like math, but he loves coding, though. Uh, he's <laughs> really good with coding. And what ended up happening was after he took our course, he actually he showed more interest in interested in math now because now we have some elements of math and coding and now he sees the value of learning more math and how it fits in right and it made it more tangible for him instead of just learning it for the sake of it now he knows where he can use it now he has a purpose and a context around it so kind of he flipped right going from hating math to now he wants to pursue more math stuff so definitely we hear this a lot but you know you don't need you don't have to be a math genius to start to learn to code actually and the other myth is that you know a lot of th- people think that programming and coding is a very solitary endeavor right uh, where you know somebody sitting in their basement and coding away all night and some people do that i've done that before and usha has done that before as well but a lot of it, there is so much collaboration that goes into putting a part, product together, right? You know, if you look at Google or Microsoft or you know, Apple, these companies hire hundreds and thousands of people. You know, each of those companies have more than 200,000 people in there as employees, right? So they all collaborate. They all work together to bring the products that we all use on a day-to-day basis. So coding is far from it, far from, you know, doing one guy somewhere, sitting somewhere uh, kind of thing. It There is a huge community out there, both online and offline, that you can reach out and collaborate and, you know, work with to create what you have in your mind, basically. So these are the two things we keep hearing a lot. And the screen time, definitely the screen time, if you find a balance, I think learning to code definitely will help not just the adults, but kids, not only in their profession, they can take it up as the profession, but even if they don't become coders, coding intersects with so many domains, right? Whether it's even the movie industry acts, uses coding, NASA uses coding. If you want to automate a thing, if you want to build an app, if you want to build a you know, game, anything you want to do, coding intersects with you know all of those So definitely a very good tool to have in your toolkit. One of the recent finds that my oldest son actually introduced this to us, there is a Chrome Music Lab where you could actually create music. So that was a very cool thing for the kids. Like they spend, you know, if we let them, they they would spend hours on it. So So this is where like music intersects with coding. I wish, I mean, at 
coders just themselves would not be able to create something like this. I'm sure there are musicians who are involved in the, behind this. So that's something cool to check out for the kids and adults. You could actually create your own music, compose it, and then play it. That reminds me of something one of my friends told me about. I think her son is about nine or 10. There's a very popular gaming platform right now. Maybe you will know the name if I describe it, where you can you go in and there's like a whole universe of games that you can play and some people are making their own games. Does this, do you know what I'm talking about? The yeah, Roblox, are you referring to yes. Roblox? Yes, that's what yeah. it is. I've never used it, but it's apparently very popular. Is it your older son using that? And what do you think of it? Is it is it a good tool? Because I heard it's good, but it's not fully regulated or something. So it's possible the child may come across some some dangerous things. Is that true? Or I know my friend was feeling concerned about it because she wasn't sure if it was a good place for him to spend his time. Right. There are two platforms that are popular. Roblox is one and there is uh, Fortnite, I think, which is where you can actually do, you know, somebody, you can play with somebody online, some random guy uh, online. Our kids are younger, so we haven't, they haven't explored this yet. But you know, from what I hear from my friends is that what they do is when they want to play online, they pair up with the people they already know, like friends and families, kids, you know, from their, you know, from their school, from or- their school or from, you know, kids they already know. That's one way to kind of keep them in the in the boundaries of safety and still have them enjoy the game they like. But definitely, yes, you know, anything online, we have to be vigilant, right? There are a lot of bad things out there, and especially concerning kids. If we have a safe boundary around it, definitely, yes, uh, kids kids can definitely explore these options. And and I think we are okay even if our kids want to uh, you know, explore these uh, platforms. I would encourage them because I think playing video games and you know, especially these collaborative games, they help build their brains. You know, we are not opposed to any of that as long as it's done in a safe environment, though. Yeah. This is something that really piqued my curiosity when I read a book by Manoush Zumarodi. Are you familiar with her work? She writes about how important it is to for boredom. And her book is called Bored and Brilliant. Have you heard of her work? Uh, no. It's really wonderful. It's a great... I haven't heard about her. It's a great book that is mostly targeted for adults to embrace boredom because sometimes if we spend too much time trying to entertain ourselves and avoid boredom, we actually stifle our creativity and our brilliance, our intelligence. And so the book outlines the importance of boredom and all of its different elements. But she also talks about Jane McGonagall, who has done so much work around video games and how video games can actually be supportive of mental health and important for childhood development. And I think in that in the book, Bored and Brilliant, it's discussed how so many parents have this desire to encourage their children to play less video games. However, that might be counterintuitive because the child may seek out the video games for their mental health. So if they associate not being able 
like limitations, it, it's more damaging for them because it's an important outlet. But also Jane McGonigal's work is centered around how video games can be used in a very positive way. And so I think, you know, a lot of what you're describing here is like there's a big opportunity for more games to be developed in around like empowerment and intelligence and and what you were saying earlier about how screen time isn't always a bad thing. If it's used properly, it can contribute to a lot of positivity. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways that I have from the work that you're doing and what you're discovering. And I think that's so important. So I want to thank you so much for talking about this because Jason and I are not parents, but some of our listeners are parents and a lot of our friends are parents. And I feel like I'm constantly observing the struggles that parents go through in this time of technology and hearing about the work that you're doing. It it makes me hopeful and excited about technology. And it also is inspiring me because I think, wow, maybe I want to take one of your courses. <laughs> is this, are your courses designed for all ages? Are they specifically for children, but are you open to having adults take them too? Like what if someone like me is, is interested in taking them that's not a kid and doesn't have children? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're more than welcome to join the course, but most of our courses are designed for middle schoolers, like ages 11 to 14-ish. We, you know, we have some of high schoolers take it to like the entry level high schoolers. The reason we do it for them is because to understand text-based coding, you have to be at a certain age mentally, you know. You know, that's why even in schools they don't introduce algebra until you are like 12 years of age, right? They don't introduce at 5 or 6. It's, I think same thing with coding where we expect basic understanding of things and kids of age 11 and up, they have their, you know, prefrontal cortex kind of formed and they can reason and think through things better. So that's why we kind of, you know, have an age range there, primarily for mid- middle schoolers. But yeah, if nobody has asked us to teach, any adult has, hasn't asked <laughs> us to teach yet. So if somebody shows interest, definitely yes. Well, you never know, you might get me and Jason as students, because clearly it's beneficial and also just interesting. I mean, maybe uh, just to observe it, I think it's, it's just really neat. And you've inspired me to learn some new things and to better understand it and also be more supportive of it. A few years ago, I participated in a workshop that was designed to support women in in STEM or STEAM. I think it was actually STEAM because they were incorporating the arts element of it. And it opened my eyes to the statistics for women and like how important it is to have all different types of people, you know, regardless of gender or background or age even, you know, and and I think that's also the other big takeaway here is even if it's not something that I pursue personally or professionally, it's something that I can do to support others and encourage them and to have those resources. So thank you for, for sharing this all. I'm so grateful to have your website as a resource. And I'm curious, are there any other resources that you wanted to mention? Are, are there any books on this topic or other podcasts or websites that you enjoy where other people could 
follow to continue learning more about coding and programming? Uh, yes, definitely for especially for kids, code.org, even uh, for adults, right? Code.org is one of the best places to start exploring things. And uh, if you are in the UK, Code Club, is it codeclub.uk, code I think, is one of the best resources out there. Yeah, that is generally what we recommend as a starting point for most kids and adults because you can find things for all different kinds of age groups there and uh, you can take your path they have set paths for you know different age groups so you can explore those options wonderful thank you well we'll link to your website too so that anyone listening who might be interested regardless of your age could check out your courses and follow all the amazing work that you're doing. And thanks again for being here today and discussing this. It was fascinating to me and wonderful getting to know you each more. So thanks for for taking the time. And for the listener, we'll have the links to everything we mentioned, including all those great resources at wellevator.com, which is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you go to the podcast section, there's a full transcript. There's the video version of this. There is links to everything and ways that you can get in touch with our wonderful guests here today. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.